The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today. Episode 1, 1982, Love Me Do. In this first installment of this five-part series for 82, we will cover the month of January. Perhaps what makes the holiday season different from the rest of the year, even more than the gifts and the decorations, is the music that has become part of it. This year, the 25,000 members of ASCAP, the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, the people who write and publish America's music, not only during this season, but all through the year, join with this station in wishing you and yours the warmest of season's greetings and the happiest of New Year's. I'm sure you recognize this lovely melody as Stranger in Paradise. But did you know that the original theme is from the Polovetsian Dance No. 2 by Borodin? So many of the melodies of well-known popular songs were actually written by the great masters, like these familiar themes. Take your hands off my knee, young man. Company 
beginning of the year, Paul McCartney is seen spending a lot of time at the Abbey Road Studios in London, working on his forthcoming album now titled Tug of War. She thinks it's fair. Arnie never does get any work. Sexual innuendos there. Mm. Or the company owns his underwear. Paul also continued to work on a homespun nonsense tune from last August. On January 8th, Paul is featured in a taped interview from Abbey Road Studios London by Sue Lawley for BBC's news magazine called Nationwide. There's a shadow hanging over me. Children of the 60s, as it were, now approaching their 40s. Do you approach it with any fear? 40s? Mm. No. Maturity, I look at it as uh, maturity. I'm going for the mature angle. Which is? Grey hair. You've got some, Sagging everything. You've got some grey hair. I know, Sue. Did you have to tell them? (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't mind, actually. No, it's God streaked me. Hello? He's not here. He's been interviewed. <laughs> He's been interviewed. I don't care. No, there's nothing I can do about it. It doesn't you know, worry you. It doesn't worry no. you. you know, no. I'd be lucky if I get to be old. I've been working with George Martin on, a, on an LP, and uh, I'm not working with Wings, I'm working with various people, really on the idea of sort of casting the particular piece of music rather than just using a group for everything. You, you, you mentioned that it's, it's not Wings. I mean, does Wings exist anymore? Rather than not really, no. The moment. I mean, Wings, anyway, had a few lineup changes and stuff. The idea is that if we ever want to get back together again, we will, and we're just keeping it really loose. But for this album, I'm not working with them. I'm, I'm just working uh, with other people. Really just because I fancied a change, and I thought it was getting a bit limiting just working with the same group of people all the time. I think have been worried that your muse had flown, as it were. You haven't brought out a record for a hell of a long time. It's really just because I've been working on this particular one. And uh, I went into this project thinking, well, I'm not going to rush it out for Christmas like everyone does, you know, because the record companies start ringing you about September. They say, well, uh, we, you know, we'd like it by October, you know. So I just decided, George and I decided that we'd just work on it till it was finished, till we felt like it sounded good, and then we'd release it whatever time of year it was. It's a luxury to be able to do that. But the record before, I would, uh, a few records before, I would just automatically do what they told me, you know. I just decided it was about time that I just actually tried to get the music right instead of working to some kind of deadline that was arbitrary anyway. Because what you've also done is, is not really um, fallen prey to your own wealth in the sense that you haven't bought a, a baronial hall in the stockbroker belt and... You don't wear chunky jewellery and you haven't bought a swimming pool, have you? You haven't got a swimming pool, have you? I have, actually, so... Have you? Oh yes, I succumbed to the temptation. <laughs> well, i got kids now, see, so that's different. I never did get one until I got... Uh, 
but the, but the story is really that, that that you try to protect them from your wealth almost. Yeah, don't well, you? I do, and I think it's a good idea too because I've seen so many kids are spoiled. <laughs> I mean, we don't have a nanny or anything. You know, Linda does it. We don't have a cook. Um, some people think we're really mad because you know I've got four kids and that is quite a big job for her. You know, it's because it's that job plus her photography plus she sings with me and stuff. So she's got like, quite a lot. So, of course, unlike many people who've achieved this fame and fortune that we're talking about, managed to maintain a very good personal life. I think so, yeah. I mean, I don't know about bliss, you know. Sometimes it's domestic blitz as opposed to domestic blitz. Uh, but um, on balance, we do have a happy life, yeah. greatest sadness, of course, was when John was murdered. That just must have made you think again about this fame business. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, sure. Um, well, it did. Um, but, uh, what's the good? Well, what can you do? You just think, you think a lot. You think for many weeks after it and you try and work it all out. But you come down to think there's nothing you can do. But did it make you alter your, your lifestyle in any way? I mean, I, you know, no, it just, I thought it all, went through it all and thought, is there any way that I can do that? And really just decided, no, you know, I think if it had been the other way around mm. and you'd been asking John that question, I think you'd find that he would kind of say, no, you know, you just sort of got to do what you do, really. Well, one of these days when my feet are on the ground I'm gonna look around In America on January 13th, Boardwalk Records released a single, Private Property, by Ringo Starr. Private property, don't run off with it, you'll be breaking the law. Monopoly, my philosophy, don't go fooling with private property. She's mine, she belongs to me, 
I'm working on fine as long as you agree That she's my private property Private property Coincide with the single's release, Ringo and Barbara joined Paul and Linda at the iWork Studios in southwest London to film an 11-minute short titled The Cooler. This mini MPL short film will showcase the three McCartney contributions that are featured on Ringo's Stop and Smell the Roses LP. Despite Ringo and Paul's efforts to promote the single, it failed to chart anywhere, which led to RCA dropping him from the Boardwalk label. Speaking of private property, it was around this time that Yoko Ono had fired Lennon's personal assistant, Fred Seaman, on the grounds of theft. Fred was accused of stealing John Lennon's personal diaries, stereo equipment, and various letters and journals. Yoko learned that something was just not right when she was approached by a party that wanted to sell her John's diaries and journals. Yoko initially gave the diaries to Julian and asked Fred to deliver them to him. Ono contacted the authorities. Here Fred Seaman explains how he was advised of the situation. Very, uh, very sobering experience. 
Eventually, the police raided Siemens' Brooklyn residence and a Manhattan storage unit. Fred was taken into custody by the police and booked for larceny. Here is the Lennon's publicist, Elliot Mintz. Fred stole John Lennon's personal journals, his personal diaries. He took them out of the Dakota without permission. In addition to that, Fred uh, had a warehouse in Midtown Manhattan where when the police arrested him, they also seized a number of other possessions belonging to John Lennon. Stereo equipment, files, letters, handwritten lyrics of Yoko's. Fred Simon was involved in a criminal conspiracy involving at least two other people called Project Walrus. And Project Walrus was in part a scheme designed to steal the diaries and sell them privately. Elliot, because his charge that uh, other things that I had stolen, other things, there are, they are not true. Uh, I did have a storeroom but there was nothing there taken that did not belong to... Wait a second, I've seen an inventory. Uh, Jimbo, give me the inventory on the uh, full screen. This was the inventory supplied to us by the New York City Police Department. And it wasn't from a, a warehouse in Manhattan. It was actually from your apartment. The cops in, didn't ransack my apartment. In Brooklyn. Yes. It included uh, video cassettes, audio cassettes, transcripts, uh, Xerox copies of the 1978, I'm sorry, 1979-1980 journals, a painting of John Lennon, a drawing by Sean Lennon, seven manila folders containing notes, correspondence, and writing, musical instruments, serial code. Okay, can I respond to that in detail, please? That's, that's a police Okay, injury. yes. The cassettes that were taken, they were copies of Double Fantasy. I think they were talking about two cassettes of Double Fantasy. The videotape was a videotape called Walking on Thin Ice, which I was involved in the production of. I was in the videotape. The papers that were taken were shopping lists that John had written to me, some of which I reproduce in the book. Uh, the, uh, I forget the other stuff. I've never seen that list, by the way. Give me the, the Xerox copy that we have, please, Mike. This is the big list of stuff that I... There's, there's two pages. I got no okay. Uh, reading from this page, at the top it says, Sonia video, video cassette, Badlands. That was a movie. I don't know why the cops took that. Two scotch color video cassettes, Beatles. I think that was a, my copy of Hard Day's Night. Uh, then there was a cassette copies of Woman and Walking on Thin Ice, which I helped in the production, and I was in Walking on Thin Ice. But you didn't know. Uh, and Geraldo, if I might add, there are two copies. There's one list of things of stolen property that were taken from, from Fred's uh, Brooklyn apartment. There's another inventory sheet taken from the storage facility in Midtown Manhattan, including John's purse. True. I had pled guilty to a count of grand larceny in connection with uh, my taking John Lennon's journals out of the Dakota, uh, and I had pled guilty to... Uh, to uh, one account of a, a Class D felony, I think it was, and I was sentenced to five years probation. Climb aboard a butterfly and take off on the breeze. Let your worries flutter by and do the things you please. In a land where dollar bills are falling off the trees On a dreamer's holiday Every day for breakfast there's a dish of scrambled stars And for luncheon you'll be munching rainbow candy bars You'll be living a la mode on Jupiter or Mars on a dreamer's holiday. On January 20th, Paul McCartney is cast away on the BBC Radio 4 program Desert Island Discs with host Roy Plumley. On this 40th anniversary broadcast, Paul is mythically sent to a deserted island with some of his favorite records and books. No reservation, just bring along the one you love. 
Help yourself to happiness and sprinkle it with mirth. Close your eyes and concentrate and dream for all you're worth. You will feel terrific when you get back down to earth from a dreamer's holiday. Circular, big palm tree in the middle, fake. It's got yellow sand on it, little lapping waves. I'm there in trousers just to the knee and frayed. A few suitcases lying around, one carrying my guitar and a couple of these records, and the log that we managed to swim ashore on. Upon entering the BBC studios to record the show, Paul Massey, a photographer for the tabloid newspaper Daily Star, photographs McCartney entering the building. Paul is not too pleased to be photographed and punches the photographer. Needless to say, the tabloid headline the next day read, Paul's latest hit. Desert Island just conjures up traditional British pleasures like the great British breakfast, Billy Cotton Band Show. Very sort of downbeat, very relaxed. I love its um, homeliness. Paul, how well could you endure loneliness, perhaps for a long time? Uh, good question. I give in. Next question. <laughs> right. No, no, seriously, folks. How well could I endure loneliness? Um, I don't really know. When I was a kid, I never used to mind it too much. Since then, I haven't actually been very lonely, so I haven't kind of tested it lately. But uh, I never used to mind it too much. It's quite like getting away on my own. Can you think of one thing you'd be particularly happy to have got away from? Yes, I would say probably people snatching photographs when I don't want to be photographed. It's probably the, the one thing I would be glad to get away from. Do you have a big collection of discs? I mean, have you kept all the old ones? No, I'm hopeless. In fact, I wish I'd just actually bought every record I'd made or kept the free copy they gave me, but I never have. You haven't even got a set of your own? No. Terrible, isn't it? Well, you've got eight to take to the island. What's the first one you've chosen? The first one is Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel. To me, that sort of takes me back to when I was first buying records. Up until that point, it had been sort of Billy Cotton and swing and bebop and stuff, but suddenly rock and roll kind of burst on the scene. And Elvis was one of the first people that kind of really made me take an interest. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lone Street, that heartbreak hotel where I'll be. I'll be just so lonely, baby. Well, I'm so lonely. I'll be just so lonely. I could die. Although it's always crowded, you still can find some room for broken-hearted lovers to cry there in the gloom. Be so, I'll be just lonely, baby. I'll be just lonely. I'll be just lonely when they could die. Man, the bellhop's tears keep flowing, and the desk clerk's dress in black. Well, they've been so long on the street, they'll never be. Never look back and think of something Think you're so lonely, baby Well, they're so lonely Well, they're so lonely And they could die Well, if your baby leaves you You've got a tale to tell Well, just take a walk down the street To Heartbreak Hotel Where you will be Well, you think you're so lonely 
lonely, baby. Well, you'll be lonely. You'll be so lonely, you could die. Record number two. Record number two is Sweet Little Sixteen by Chuck Berry. Why? On most of the records I'm picking today, I could have chosen other records from these people's repertoires, like Elvis, definitely there's about 20 Elvis records. I mean, I Was the One, One Night, Don't Be Cruel, All Shook Up, all of those are equal favourites, really. Jailhouse Rock, equal favourites to Heartbreak Hotel. But I've chosen one that sort of sums them up. So with, with Chuck Berry, I've just chosen Sweet Little Sixteen because it sort of sums him up for me. They're really rocking in Boston and Pittsburgh, PA Deep in the heart of Texas and round the Frisco Bay All over St. Louis and down in New Orleans All the cats want to dance with Sweet Little Sixteen Little 16 She just got to have About a half a million A famed autograph Her wallet filled with pictures She gets them one by one Becomes so excited Watch her look at her run Oh mommy, mommy Please may I go It's such a sight to Somebody steal the show the grown-up blues, tight dresses and lipstick, she's sporting high heel shoes, oh but tomorrow morning, she'll have to change her trend, 
and be sweet 16 and back in class again. But they'll be rocking in Boston, Pittsburgh, PA, deep in the heart of Texas, and round the Frisco Bay. have your third record it's dances from gloriana by benjamin Britten, and played by julian bream and my preference would always be for rock and roll but i do like a lot of classical music i don't know much about it but i you know i like the great tunes in classical music and stuff so to sum it all up this is probably the the favorite record that i would take it's just there's just something special about it and i've loved it for years That is Bebopalula by Gene Vincent, which was the first record I ever bought. So it's a sort of special record for me. He sang it in a film called The Girl Can't Help It. And uh, it was always a big favourite of mine. We got to meet Gene later when we were in Hamburg. But as I say, the first record I ever bought, big impression. Well, Bebopalula, she's my favourite. Bebopalula, I don't mean my favourite. 
Rama, baby, baby, Rama, baby, baby, Rama. Well, she's the gal in the red, blue jeans. She's the queen of all the teams. She's the woman that I know. She's the woman that loves me so. Say, be bopalula, she's my baby. Be bopalula, I don't mean that. Be bopalula, she's my baby, my baby, my baby. Let's rock. chosen any Beatle records, but if we'd had more than eight, I probably would have. I haven't chosen any of my records. So to sort of sum up the whole thing, I've chosen one off John Lennon's record, Double Fantasy, uh, which I think is a beautiful song. Uh, it's very moving to me. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I'd just like to sum the whole thing up by playing a song called Beautiful Boy. Thank you. 
searching uh, now this is one we used to do at the cavern with the Beatles and uh, we used to have little groups of fans who used to give themselves little names there used to be a group of fans called the cement mixers with some other group called the wooden tops and they just make up little names for themselves you know being a little gang and there was two girls called Chris and Val and they used to sing, say sing searching Paul sing searching <laughs> that used to be the big request from Chris and Val sing searching so we always used to do this one. It used to be a big request, and uh, it was a big favourite with the group by the Coasters. Searching. Gonna find her. You know 
Record number seven. Is a little Richard record. And uh, again, I've chosen just one to sum him up. But there are millions of his stuff. I like a lot of stuff that he does. And he, he's a friend of mine from the Hamburg days, little Richard. The record I've chosen is Tutti Frutti. Scout. Yep. Because um, this is important. Did you get a lot of badges? Not many, no. I uh, think I got a bivouac badge. That's camping out, isn't it? Yeah. That's pretty fine. Good. That's this is going to be very useful to you, all this knowledge on your desert island. That's right. You? right. I'll make a fine fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If there's any wood on this island. Yes, indeed. Okay. Mm. Campfire cookery? Definitely. You're I'll a vegetarian, aren't you? Yes. And as a practical farmer, you should get the island cultivated within a year or two. That'd be good, yeah. Yes, as long as we've got a bit of rain. Would you try to escape? Probably. Do you know anything about small craft? No, I'm a hopeless sailor. That would be a slight difficulty. I'd probably sort of wave hankies at the passing boats. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'd give it a go, I'm sure. You know, just try and escape. Let's have your last record. Well, um... This one is a song that was written by my dad. He only ever wrote one song, to my knowledge. And um, I once said to him, I said, Dad, you know that song you wrote? He said, I didn't write a song, son, you know. I said, but you did, you know. Remember walking in the park with Eloise? He said, no, I didn't write it. He said, I made it up. <laughs> I said, well, you know, these days, writing it 
that's what they say, you know, if you made it up, it means you write, you don't have to actually physically write it. So I said, he said, yeah, well, I know the song. I said, well, I've recorded it with some friends of mine in uh, Nashville. And the friends were Chet Atkins, mm. who I happened to be working with. And Chet brought along Floyd Kramer. And uh, I had the drummer from my group at the time, Jeff Britton. And we got together and uh, we made a little recording of this, especially to play my dad, you know. So he really used to love this one, you know. in the park with Eloise by the Country Hams. What are you playing on that? I'm playing bass and washboard. Washboard, very good. I admired that washboard <laughs> at the end. <laughs> if you could take only one disc out of the eight you've played us, which would it be? I think, for me, it probably would be Beautiful Boy, but it'd be a very hard choice. I probably would take that record by John. And one luxury you're allowed to take, nothing of any practical use. 
Will that definitely be a guitar? Right. Because uh, that's the kind of thing I can spend hours and engross myself with and write songs. And one book, apart from the Bible and Shakespeare, which are already there. Well, I was wondering whether to take a sort of a really sort of impressive book, you know, should I take Canterbury Tales in the original Chaucerian thing, you know, which is something I might take just because it'd take me forever to work it out. You know, it'd be like a crossword puzzle. And I did a little bit of that school and was vaguely interested, so that would be quite a choice. But I, I plumped for a book that my wife's put out, which is called Linda's Pictures, because that's got pictures of my kids in it. Mm -hmm. and it's got a lot of stuff of Linda's, and so that is probably what I'd plump for. A good family book. A good family book. Linda's Pictures. And thank you, Paul McCartney, for letting us hear your Desert Island Discs. Thank you very much, Roy. Goodbye, everyone. While Paul McCartney reminisced on the airwaves and Desert Island Discs, one-time Beatles record producer George Martin was also doing some airwave reminiscing on the BBC Radio 1 series The Record Producers with host Andy Peebles. Just part of a record called Experiments with Mice by Johnny Dankworth and his orchestra. Released in 1956, it was one of the first hit records ever made by one of Britain's greatest record producers, George Martin. Most people will identify George Martin with the Beatles, and indeed they brought him his greatest fame. But during the next 60 minutes, we hope to give you a broader view of George Martin, the producer, and perhaps in the process, throw some light on the sort of qualities that made him so important to the British record industry. 1950 was the year that he joined EMI as assistant to the head of the Parlophone label, Oscar Preuss, and his classical music training meant that he was allocated the job of producing classical material for that label. Mind you, some of the material that he produced in the those early days in the Abbey Road studios could more properly be described as classic than classical. There was, for example, the famous Peter Ustinov record. The original Peter Ustinov record, the phony folklore and mock Mozart, was a multi-track job where he sang four times over all the different things. And we didn't have multi-track machines in those days, so it had to be sound on sound. And of course, everybody knows when you put sound on sound, you get horrendous sort of quality after about three of them. So we had to be awfully careful with our signal-to-noise ratios and things, but... In those days, it was uh, considered to be not only adventurous, but downright stupid to go to that, that extreme, merely to get the one person singing with himself. But it worked, and um, I wanted to have better technical facilities and enable me to do that without having all the awful disadvantages. And it wasn't until multi-track came along that we were able to enjoy that. <laughs> Viva! 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 Viva!
part of mock Mozart featuring the voices and noises of Peter Ustinov. From the early 50s, it's an example of what an adventurous young producer could do with basic tape facilities. We use the word producer, but it would have been more correct to call him an A&R man, artist and recording in those days. Just to put things into better perspective, George Martin joined EMI in the days when records were cut directly onto a wax disc, when 78 was the speed at which records were played, and when sales of one and a half thousand records ensured that costs would be covered and 3,000 sales meant a big seller. But the world was changing and George Martin with it. We found that um, American recording techniques were very much in advance of ours by the time 1955 came along. And of course this was the beginning of the rock and roll period and we would listen, would listen to sounds coming out of America which would horrify most English people because they were so blatant and coarse and they were doing things technically to records which raised many an eyebrow amongst the legitimate um, engineer in Abbey Road and the only way to, uh, to sort of fight them was to join them. By 1955, on the retirement of Oscar Preuss, Martin had become head of the Parlophone label but along with the music he was beginning to make more and more comedy records. Ah, uh, let it play from your hearts, lads. That's right. From the best of sellers, part of the manic, suddenly it's folk song, and once again the imaginative use of tape in evidence. Comedy material followed thick and fast. In 1959, Martin recorded At the Drop of a Hat with Flanders and Swan. They were such charming people, Michael Flanders and Donald Swan, and um, that was just a question of my going along to hear them in a little place in Notting Hill Gate, and loved what I heard, and suggested to them I made an album of it, and they, they were delighted. Then they came into London and it was a big success and all was well. But it was a good, good experience too. I recorded five different shows of that and just edited it down. It's really the kind of thing people do on radio all the time now. High fidelity, high fi's the thing for me. With an LP touch. Bel Canto sounds like double dutch. And I, I never did, did care for music much. It's a high fidelity. The song of reproduction by the marvellous Flanders and Swan. Amongst that group of early comedy classics recorded by George Martin was another show, Beyond the Fringe. Look, see up there, that's the royal box. But there's no royal people in it at the moment. No royalty. <laughs> but I mean, that wouldn't be royalty, would it? Not crouching, no. no. <laughs> During his first 12 years with EMI, George Martin became known as something of an oddball. He would launch himself into projects that no one else would touch, and it was a healthy learning process. My producing career, I think, really started with the comedy records, because I was getting very involved on the floor. Instead of just being in the control room and saying, yes, that's nice, or you were singing a bit flat, it became a matter of going through material and saying, let's not do this. Uh, if we put a bit of music behind this, or have a sound of a bad and sore coming in from the left it'll make it much better it was creating before we got into the studio at that stage and um, that's really what a producer's up to he's sort of masterminding if you like the the concept of what it's going to sound like before it actually happens it was in the early summer of 1962 that martin met up with the beatles he was almost their last hope having been rejected by everyone else in the record business they were introduced to the man who'd had big success with the most unlikely acts and he took them on the first single released in october 1962 was love me do the second please please me was released just three months later quickly followed by the first album which was recorded and mixed in 13 hours there was a reason for that 
um, you know, I was very excited about the boys. I thought, I thought we had a really big group on our hands, and the first record didn't do all that well. It got to number 17, and I was convinced that if I had the right song, I would have uh, a real hit with them. Well, we got it with Please Please Me. It became, I knew, I knew it was a number one when we made it, and it certainly turned out to be that way. So obviously, in order to consolidate that success, I had to have an um, album out on the market very quickly. And the thing to do was to record as many numbers as I could from their existing repertoire. I'd been to the cavern, I knew what they did. So I said, look, let's come into the studio, let's just go through the best songs in your act, and we just put them down like a live performance. We'll take a bit of trouble over it. So they came into the studio one morning, and uh, we worked right through until about 10, 11 at night. And I recorded, I think it was around about 11 tracks, something like that. And we put on the single as well. There was more than 11 tracks. Anyway whatever it was. And it was just like uh, recording a live album in a way because it was all done straight on uh, onto two-track. Two yes, it was two-track recording because we didn't have four-track then. But I used it as two-track, not stereo, because I kept the rhythm separate from the voices. So I was able to compress the two together and make a harder sound. One, two, three, five!
As we know, the Beatles bus finally left the road in 1970. It had been an exhilarating and exciting journey. But Martin was incredibly busy with his company, Air London, and not short of artists who wanted him to produce them. One of them was Paul McCartney, who had been asked to do a song for a James Bond film. Well, it all started with Paul ringing me up and saying, look, I've got a song for a film. Would you produce it for me and arrange it for me? I said, sure. I spent some time with him up in his house in Cavendish Avenue, um, going through the thing, and from my point of view, it was a, a record that we were making. So I didn't spare any expense, and I booked a, a large orchestra, and I said, this is the way we do it. We do it with wings, and we work, work on the session uh, with just the group, and then in the evening, I'll bring in the orchestra, and I'll still keep wings there, and we're trying to do it live all together, um, to try and get a live feeling to it. And in fact, that's what we did, except that Paul, Paul's voice was the, was the live sound, but I found the string pickup was a bit too much, so I took the strings outside and overdubbed them. Apart from that, it was live recording. And then we put on backing voices and so on, and, and it made what I thought was a good record. Fine. So then, apparently, it's submitted to Harry Saltzman. And Harry had asked Paul for a signature tune for his film. So when Harry hears this record, he accepts it as a demo. The next thing I hear is that um, Ronnie Cass, who was Harry, Harry Saltzman's assistant, asked me if I would meet Cappy Broccoli, which I did. I said, well, what, what's, uh, what's it all behind it all? He said, well, they're thinking of you doing the score of the film. I said, well, that's jolly nice. Thank you very much. He, the next thing I hear, would you be prepared to fly out to Jamaica to talk to Harry about it? Well, it was an offer I could hardly refuse. So I flew out to Jamaica, and Harry meets me there. And the first thing he says was, great score you did there. Very nice. I said, thank you very much. He said, now, who should we get to sing it in the film? I said, I don't follow. Um, we got Paul McCartney. Yeah, yeah. He said, but uh, what do you think of Thelma Houston? Well, I think of, she's very good, I, I said. Um, but I really think that Paul does a good job on this, don't you? Uh, how about Shirley Bassey? And I was completely nonplussed. And in my best tactful way, I had to sort of suggest to him that if he didn't take the thing more or less as it stood, I didn't think that Paul would like the, him to have the song. And I had to be very delicate about this because I could see that egos were getting in the way. Um, eventually, it did sink through. And I got the job of doing the film score. And it all ended happily. But um, it was a nasty moment. When you were young and your heart was an open book You used to say live and let live You know you did, you know you did, you know you did But if this ever-changing world in which we live in makes you give in and cry Say live and let die
But if this ever-changing world in which we live in makes you Live and let die from 1973. In addition to acting as a catalyst, adding the right sort of musical touches, understanding the technical resources, and trying to remain the most objective person in the studio, what else should a producer be aware of? It's no good bullying people because um, they dig their heels in and do the opposite. In fact, tact is one of the absolute requirements of, of a record producer. He's got to make the guy think that he thought of it in the first place. Um, you know, in a studio, you don't go around saying, uh, what a clever chap am I? Uh, I thought of this, and this is my thing. Because that immediately destroys the ego of the person you're working with. And I still say that the artist is much more important than the producer. He's your spearhead, so you've got to build him up. And if you have, do have a good idea, try and make him think of it. You know, I'd rather do that and, and get a really good record than end up with a rotten record that you can take credit for. In 1974, Martin established a long and successful relationship with the band America. They were at a very low ebb in their careers. They'd had big success, but they were now sinking fast. And I gave them a very hard time. You know, they asked me to do it in November, and I said I couldn't touch it till April. And they wanted me to do it in Los Angeles. I said, I won't do it unless you come to England and work in my studios here. And they said they'd like to spend two months on it. I said, if we don't finish it in three weeks, you've had it. It was that kind of thing. And I was very arrogant about it. I was amazed, really, looking back on it, that they put up with it. But they came over, and they were terribly nice, terribly charming. And we worked, got together really terribly well. And um, instead of questioning anything I might suggest, they, everything I said, you know, should we put in a, a horn passage here and whatever it will be? Yeah, that's a great idea. Nothing, everything was accepted. So that we finished the album in 17 days, including all the scoring that I did. And uh, it was, I was knocked out by it. It was so easy. It was like falling off a log. And I said to them, the animality, well, this has been such a nice working relationship, it can't possibly be successful. And of course, it was a big seller. It was sold over a million, which added me, because I, I thought it was such too nice an album to, to sell. Oh, the 
album by America, with whom George Martin made seven LPs. It was perhaps more of a surprise that he should work with Jeff Beck. Although an unlikely combination, they did two albums together and achieved great success. I was advised by someone pretty high in the record industry at that time saying, don't touch Jeff Beck, he's a loser. I said, no, I think he's a great guitar player. But you know, you're not really in that, in that mould, you're a bit, you know, a bit M.O.R. for him, aren't you, you know? That was the sort of innuendo. And I said, well, all right, okay, I'm going to do it. So we started out with Blow by Blow, and the only sort of um, further raised eyebrows I got from Jeff was when I suggested putting strings on a couple of tracks. <laughs> uh, again, a bit like uh, yesterday, I guess. But he was excellent in the studio. He did take a little time to get himself together on his solos, but he is a gut player. I mean, he doesn't come in with any plan, preconceived notions, and he will sit down with a battered guitar and make the most incredible sounds out of that guitar. Sometimes he'd play badly, and nothing would come, and he'd get very angry with himself. But other times, he would just pick the thing up and uh, create things which other people just couldn't do. And very inventive stuff, too.
blow by blow, Jeff Beck. Martin has resisted those who have tried to pin him down as one sort of producer or another. He's written film scores, conducted orchestras, built recording studios, and generally kept on the move. I don't really like calling myself a rock and roll producer or calling myself a classical producer because I've, I've produced all sorts of records and enjoyed them all. And I do like being versatile. I, I hate doing just one thing. And I think it's wrong to get confined in, in that way. On January 25th on the ABC television network in America... It's the American Music Awards! Paul McCartney appears in a brief pre-taped clip on the 9th Annual American Music Awards show. Extraordinary contribution to the music of America and the entire world for his musical genius and composition, orchestration and performance, for his exceptional courage and spirit, the American Music Awards of Merit is presented to Stevie Wonder January 25th, 1982. McCartney is shown in a videotaped clip congratulating Stevie Wonder for receiving the Academy's Award of Merit. There are people who could not be here tonight, so we went to them. In Jamaica, Paul McCartney. Hi, Stephen. Good evening. All the best on this award thing you're getting tonight. I, I want to tell you, you really deserve it. This is Paul McCartney speaking, by the way. Remember him? Anyway, listen, uh, you know, I just want to t- tell you that it's really great you're getting this thing, and I'm very happy for you. I hope you have a really great evening, and all the best for me. I'm on holiday in Jamaica, by the way. It's all right for some people, isn't it? Well, anyway, have a great time this evening, and lots of love from all of us. From Detroit, Diana Ross. Continuing in a moment, George receives a special UNICEF Award of Appreciation for the humanitarian aid he gave to Bangladesh, India. It's from the heart. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. John and Yoko's LP, Double Fantasy, wins a Grammy. Both John and I were always very proud and happy that we were part of the human race who made good music for the earth and for the universe. Thank you. Capitol Records release a new Beatles album. Hello. Is Paul speaking? Paul McCartney. This is Ringo Starr. George Harrison. And Paul releases a new single. Recently, I made a record with Stevie uh, called Ebony and Ivory. So, dig it! Next on Yesterday and Today. Well, thanks very much, you know. And this is Paul McCartney signing off. And me, I enjoyed it. George Harrison. And me, keep swinging. Ring of stuff. Or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time.
I'm Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we bring you the Kaminsky family of podcasts yesterday and today and the Third Men podcast. You might know me from one of those dumb voices I do or my dad (laughs) from his better show than ours. Wow. (laughs) And we're here to tell you about some cool merchandise you can pick up for the shows. As we mentioned in each episode, we do not in any way profit from these shows whatsoever, but to break even on some expenses, we have put up some cool merch that you can pick up to help support the show. Yes, some fun apparel, things you can put on yourself. Are we going to be selling Marks and Spence underwear? (laughs) Don't worry, we will. (laughs) You can head to our social media pages, that's facebook.com slash yesterday and today podcast, or facebook.com slash third men, or you could head to society6.com slash Kaminsky Family Podcast, that's society, the number six, dot com slash K-A-M-I-N-S-K-I Family Podcasts. Yeah, keep our lights on. I'm in the dark. Dad, any words of wisdom? Hello? The lights just went out. (laughs) Guys, we need your help. (laughs) Buy stuff. Perhaps a coffee mug that you can enjoy a beverage out of while listening to our shows. And if you haven't got yours, please send forth in and get a free one. All right. (laughs) Thank you, Dad. All right, we'll see you on the podcast, folks. Bye. It's audio. You can't see me. Bye.